get more of the backstory on our Patreon page with exclusive interviews, outtakes, and the Lost Controversial Backstory Podcast you can only get here. Support on the Backstory Bonus Level. Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Colby Cole. And this episode, we're going to talk to a producer, an artist, an entrepreneur, an executive. He has legendary hits under his belt. He's been in the business since he was literally a child. And he's definitely still making it happen, Mr. Jermaine Dupree. Welcome to the Backstory Thanks Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. So, so we're going to go a little bit into your history in this podcast. And I thought it was funny when I flew in today. When I flew in and the plane landed, the stewardess or whatever you call them, flight attendant says, Welcome to Atlanta. Yeah. And I only think of Welcome to Atlanta when I think of you. Because <laughs> you kind of like birthed that term, Welcome to Atlanta, yeah. in one of your... Um, Major projects, but let's let's get it started, man. Because you, um, you know, you just got a lot of history, and um, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast with you because I just feel like, um, uh, and I've been doing this on this podcast. There's a lot of people that have a lot of history that everybody doesn't really know their history, and I want I wanted people to know a little bit about you and about your story because it's very inspiring. Um, and um, so you, you 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 were born in North Carolina, and your dad, Michael Malden, was in the music business. So you kind of like grew up with your dad in the music business. No, he wasn't actually in the music business. My father was um, um, trying like a roadie. He was doing like you know on 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 um, on the road. They used to call these guys roadies that do I guess different things sound. Whatever it is, right? <laughs> Set up drums, right? Whatever it is, he was he was like a you know a guy that was around doing a lot of different road work with um, the artist that was from Atlanta in the, uh, the initial years, like um, Brick, um, SOS Band, Cameo, uh, Peebo Bryson, all these artists that were basically doing what Atlanta's doing now, right? At that time, in the, yeah, in the seventies or eighties, whatever that was. My father was like a. Uh, a road manager type of guy to these people, and um, um, I grew up in that world. Okay, and that you know that spawned me to having like a you know getting drums when I was a young uh, young kid playing drums and just being around instrumentation and people making music. So that's that's pretty much where it all started. So you you get this energy, and then you were dancing right at the time. Well, I became a dancer. Um, Around 11, 12. And I got good at like 12, I guess. So the story goes, your dad takes you to go see Diana Ross in 1982 in Atlanta. And she brings you up on stage and you just wow a full sold out show yeah. and dancing. What was that like? It wasn't that. It wasn't actually that story. But it was, it was, yeah, I went to this concert. My mother went to the bathroom and she told me not to leave my seat. And <laughs> at the moment when... My mother left to go to the bathroom. That's when Donna Ross said, I want all the kids in the audience to come on the stage. Okay. So she said she wanted all the kids to come on the stage. I stayed in my seat because my mother told me, right. hey, you don't leave yeah. the seat. You got a black mother. You yeah, know when yeah, a black yeah, mother yeah, says yeah. something, you stay there. Yeah, so I was like, I'm not moving right. my ass beat. Right. So all the people around me was like, go, go, go right. on the stage. And I right. was like, mm, nah, right. I'm not going to do this. Right. And, um, um, ultimately, I ended up going. Right. But I went after all the other kids was on the stage, and so it made it look like I was trying to be this 
super fly guy to be the last dude to come up on the stage after all the kids were already on stage. So right. it, it gave me this spotlight that made Donna Ross say, you know, what makes you so special that right. you want to come up here after everybody else? Right, 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 right. And I think I I can't quite remember. I mean, she asked me to dance. I think everybody was dancing, but the fact that I had obeyed my mother, right, but which put me on the stage late in the entertainment world. It looked like I was this little cocky kid, right, right, that had you know that had already an attitude about how he was supposed to be perceived. And I went on stage with Donna Ross last. Ultimately, that yeah, that that gave me some kind of performing courage. It didn't really. Lead into anything after that, as far as that show being something that touched other people, saying we want you to be a part. But it gave me the energy to want to be a part of it. So you you step on stage and you just look around, and yeah. that must have been like at a kid. That must have been like wow. Oh yeah, amazing. I mean, it was like you know in the Omni at the time, and I think she was in the round. Right. I remember. Right. Uh, Donna Russ was in the round, so it was, you, you could see the entire arena. Wow. Yeah. So fast forward a couple years later. Now I remember this. But I didn't realize it was you until years later. You were on the Fresh Fest tour, which was actually the first hip hop tour I've ever went to. That was I was a kid like you growing up loving hip hop, mm-hmm. and I went to the Spectrum in Philadelphia. I never forget that tour. It was Run DMC, Fat Boys, Houdini, and you were a dancer for Houdini. And I remember this because you were in the Freaks Come Out at Night video. You were a kid dancing in the video, and you ended up going on a road with them. Now, how did all that work out? Because that was during school time. You just dropped school and went on the road? No, no, no. Actually, I had a tutor. But I, I have my own show in the Fresh Fest. I actually opened the Fresh Fest up. So um, I I never knew Houdini prior to going on the Fresh Fest. I got on the Fresh Fest um, because the promoter from the Fresh Fest is from Atlanta. His name okay. is Ricky Walker. Okay. And um, he needed somebody to open this show. And, you know, dancing... I could dance and entertain people for, I guess, two minutes, <laughs> right? Uh, and 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 buy time so you know the show could get to going around whatever eight o'clock around whatever time it's supposed to be. So um, yeah, for the first the first year, the Fresh Fest, um, I was um, I was the opening artist, the opening actor that tour, and then I met Houdini um, while we doing the tour, and we just became good friends, and they took me under like a little brother. And, I just became a part of everything that they was doing. I never even actually performed with Houdini on stage, never. Well, you know, what's interesting is that that it was really when hip hop that was a that was a big moment for hip hop because everybody was doing little shows and that was doing arenas yeah. and I remember because I was a kid and I remember like it was pretty violent in the stands like because the, you in every city you went to they were bringing in kids from all the different parts of the city but it was the biggest acts in hip hop so how did that affect you because you were a kid of child of hip hop you were from Atlanta Hip-hop was coming out of the East Coast, and here you are on tour with the biggest artists in the music, and, and you opening up the show. That must have been just an amazing feeling. Yeah, it was. It was pretty um, It was pretty amazing. But at the same time, I, you know, I was too young to actually drink the juice and understand what was actually going on. I, it almost felt like it was supposed to be happening. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't really clear that what I was a part of was going to be so historic. Yeah. Oh, oh, man. It was just amazing. So homework assignment. You go to YouTube, look up Houdini, the Freaks Come Out at Night video, the actual video, and you will see, how old were you? 12? 12 years old. And you get some nice cameo time in the video. Yeah, yeah. So you got to check that out. That's a young Jermaine Dupri. All right. So let's move to 
um, a few years later. So then you really seg into the music game. And at 17, you get a chance to produce on a major label for a group called Silk Times Leather. You get yeah. to produce their whole album. At 16. At 16. So how did you convince a major label to give you just the keys to the to the Bentley, basically, the money, the budget, and everything, and to produce an entire album? You had never done that before. Initially, I don't think they knew that that was what was happening. Mm-hmm. You know, um, um, and, and, and matter of fact, I, I take that back. I think they did know. So they 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 partnered me partnered me with Joe the Butcher Niccolo. Yes, from Philly. You know, mm-hmm. Philly. Um, and and at the time he was an engineer that was doing you know Steady B and Fresh Prince and you know, Will Smith and um, Fresh Prince and Jazz Jeff. Um, all of those records that was coming out of Philly. Um, basically, they was cutting them at Studio Three, right? Yep. Yeah, so they was cutting Studio Four. Studio Four, that's the studio. And yep. Yeah, they was cutting stu- songs at Studio Four, and I didn't know him, but 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 Geffen felt like he should be the person that engineered my music, and I think that's because whoever the person that w- that did sign the deal thought that I needed just a little person in there to help me make right. sure it was right. Right. So they put you know they put me with Joe the Butcher, and we made we made the album, and he you know he was brought in as an engineer's co-producer type of thing. So was it at that moment that you decided that you wanted to be a producer, that you had all these sounds and energy? Like, where did that come from that all of a sudden that you were wanted to make music? No, I was already trying to be a producer on, on, on the Fresh Fest. So the Fresh Fest was like 84 was the first Fresh Fest. Yep. And 85 was Fresh Fest 2 and 86 was um, Fresh Fest 3. In, in 86, um, on the last Fresh Fest, um, I joined forces with Chad Elliott from from New York, who, um, if you you know if you watch Crush Groove, the kid that yep. won second place to the Fat Boys in this um, in the the, the contest yeah, at the, the club, contest, right? yeah, at FIFA. So he and I basically became a rap group, um, and we started doing things together. And Chad actually introduced me to break beats and more of the culture than I had ever known and that's when I kind of got lost in the sauce of like I want to make my own beats and I want to make my own records and I want to you know and I just start copying sounds and doing things I heard and writing raps and just really really becoming a, a complete robot <laughs> about the music to the point that um he and I start you know wanting to make records but we don't have no equipment and we had to go to people and tell the people like, yo, we want to make this, and we want to make this, and we want to make this. And one time we went to go make something, and we had this whole idea to, for, the, for a producer to sample a record. And at the time when we was talking, this probably was 88. Yeah, probably 1988. And we told producer to sample the record. And the producer was like, I'll replay it, but right. I'm, I'm not going to sample it. We want right. to sample like a whole beat. Right, right, right. So I was like, nah, I want this. Right, and the person tried to remake it, and I'm like, that don't sound the same. I want the actual this. I want right. that, and they couldn't actually understand what I was talking about. That frustration is what drove me to becoming a producer. To be like, you know, if I would have sampled this in '88, this would be a different conversation. And would that be sort of the reason why early on in your career, when you would do a project, you would do the whole project? No, no, no. I mean, that's just who I am as a mm-hmm. person. Period. I don't really, you know, I'm a 
I'm a, I'm a hundred percent of um, you know. It's only a few of us in this industry that's like that. That's, right. I'm one of these guys. Right. Right. Coming up on the Backstory Podcast, learn how a trip to the mall dramatically changed Jermaine Dupri's life. They just was cool kids that that had a swag that I had never really seen before, and I know I didn't have. I thought I right. had a swag when you was a kid. Being, I thought I had right. a swag when I was a kid, but these kids had a different type of swag, and I was kind of like. What is this? You're listening to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Colby Kolb, and this is the story of artist, producer, entrepreneur, Jermaine Dupri. In that process, you, you produced songs for Immature. You actually did something for TLC, who was coming out of Atlanta, who would, you were on uh, their, with their debut album, correct? When TLC was my group before Criss Cross, mm-hmm. um, they was actually my group. Um, I told Left Eye um, that that they could sign to the face um, because I didn't actually feel like I had the means to put out both artists at the same time. Right. Well, so that leads me to a trip to the mall that changed your life at 19 and you meet Chris Chris Smith and and Chris Kelly and they were at the mall and they actually had the clothes on backwards. Is that, (laughs) or you gave them that that whole... When I met them, they didn't have have braids. They didn't have clothes on backwards. They just was cool kids that... That had a swag that I had never really seen before, and I know I didn't have. I thought I right. had a swag when you was a kid. Big. I thought I had right. a swag when I was a kid, but these kids had a different type of swag, and I was kind of like, "What is this?" So it was my goal to investigate why people in the mall actually was, you know, acting like these kids was already stars. Um, the the mother of Chris Kelly, um, it was an article in Jet magazine that had just come out. That was about female rap. And luckily, Silk Times Leather had got a little blurb in that. Right. And they showed a picture. And one of the girls, then Silk Times Leather, just happened to be with me. So then the, the Chris Kelly's mom saw her. Right. And was like, I remember this. I saw these girls in the magazine. That's that girl. Right. So she kind of broke the ice with Chris and Chris as far as meeting them at the mall because they weren't really... Yeah, they weren't trying to even think about talking to me. <laughs> so, so you you get them, and then you spend a year or so working with them on the concept of this debut album, and you sign to Rough House. Well, no, yeah, yeah, we we I signed, I sent it. Well, you know, so so to go back and show you how you never burn bridges. The album I did with Silk Times Leather was with Joe Butcher right? as a as a producer engineer. Joe the Butcher then went on and got a record company called Rough House. Rough House with Chris so Schwartz. So then I, I knew him having a right. record company. So I was like, man, it's the only person I know that record company. Right. I got a demo on these little kids that, I, that I'm thinking about doing. I'm going to send it to you. I sent him a demo. And um, he liked it. And he was like, yeah, I want to do it. So, so you're like 19, 20 years old, right? And I'm not even 19 yet. I'm, you're not, seven, I'm you're 17. Se- 17. Yeah. You get... Crisscross, you put them together and you actually form the group with yeah. them, and then put the whole back. Like, where did the clothes thing come from? So, so once 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 they started rapping, and because they weren't even rappers, they weren't even a group when I met them. They right. were just two kids that was best friends. They had swag. Um, yeah, they had swag. So once I once I start convincing them to be a group, we just kept. I, once I got them into understanding. You know, having a different look and being different than everything. Well, the thing that helped them understand it more was that, like I said, TLC was my group. So Left Eye was living with me um, and my, you know, kind of basically living with me. So they felt like they saw 
how TLC was doing. Mm-hmm. So they kind of was understanding, like, yo, we need to have us a look, too. We need to look something. So right. when I had this conversation with them about looks, we just thought about a whole bunch of different things that we could possibly do. Um, I had blonde hair at the time, and I'm having this conversation with them. Right. And we was just, you know, just trying to figure out a bunch of things. So Chris Smith had on, he had on a jumper that was backwards, and I was like, I was forward, and it was so big that I was like, yo, you should flip it around. And he was like, what? And I'm like, yeah, flip your jump around. And let's go to the mall and see what happens. So he flipped his jump around. We went to the mall. And the rest is history. People start flipping out in the mall. I'm like, why are these people acting like this? It's just a jump. And this is before social media and the internet. Like you, social media. Yeah, social media for yeah. us was going to That was viral. That was yeah, viral. Going yeah. to Linux Square and seeing if the people were really, if they was going to react. And people in the mall were looking he got his clothes on backwards. He got his, I'm like, it's really that crazy that y'all acting like this right now. And I, I couldn't believe it because I told him to do it, but I couldn't under, I had never seen people actually pay attention to people walking through the mall like that. And they were paying attention to these kids and they didn't even have a song out. So immediately my mind was like, this is crazy. We got to get a record. So you take, I want you back from the Jackson 5. Funky Worm from the Ohio Players, the Impeach the President beat, which is a classic beat, the Midnight Theme from Manziel, and a favorite of mine, Saturday Night from Mr. Jesse Weaver, but y'all all know him as Schoolie D, he was a legend from Philadelphia, and you create Jump. Yeah. And it just, it becomes a massive worldwide smash, and you're 17 years old? Um, Once Jump came out, I was 18 going to 19. What was that like? When that song blew, because it blew, I'm sure beyond anything you ever thought it could ever blew. Oh yeah, blow. 100%. And it blew fast, and within two weeks, this song was platinum. But you know, I I had to continue to take myself back to the mall. See, I had a moment where I saw the success happen in that mall mm-hmm. that day, and I was the only person that shared this besides Chris and Chris. I I knew I knew if I had a song. The connection was supposed to be like that. Right. I didn't know it was going to actually happen, but I knew that it was supposed to happen, but I didn't know it was going to happen. So it was number one on the pop charts for eight weeks. It's the third biggest selling song of 1992. Then you put out an album. The album sells four million copies. Mm-hmm. I mean, for you, signing this label deal, or not in the label deal, but signing this artist to this label, you must have become an instant free agent. I need to work with Jermaine Dupri at that point, right? Not, I mean, well, that should have been the case, but it wasn't because I was so young. So mm-hmm. I had to deal with the fact that people didn't believe that I even knew what I was doing, and they thought it was a fluke, and people weren't paying attention to the fact that I wrote every song on the album and produced every song on the album. That didn't really matter to people. It was just right. like... You know, because at the moment when it happened, I became the youngest producer to have a number one record. Yeah, in the history and, of music. And then they go on tour with Michael Jackson around the world. That must have been like when you get the call, "Oh, we're going to take you on tour with Michael Jackson." At that time, and Michael was, you know, who he was. Yeah, I mean, but you know, like I said, I w- I was in this mode, right? When you think about, you got to think about it. I, I I, I visualized a lot of this before it actually happened. I just didn't believe that it was actually happening. You know, them, I felt like, you know, Chris and Chris, they was too big to go on tour with anybody else besides Michael Jackson. Like, but wow. you, you just don't believe you can get that phone call. And they called you. You didn't call them. No, no, they called. Definitely called. Yeah. They, you know, they wanted the kids on, you know. They and they did the... Uh... 
a song with him. Didn't they, they were in one of his videos, right? Yeah, it was in the jam video. Jam video, video. right, right. So anyway, um, the following year is the birth of So So Deaf. So tell us how you got your label, So So Deaf. Um, so, I mean, off the success of Criss Cross, So So Deaf was offered, you know, um, for me to have my own label or production deal through Sony the same way Rough House basically had. And, and you know, they, was just, they didn't know if I had more music. They just was like, do you have anything else that you want to do the way you did with Criss Cross? Right. So then you meet these young ladies, uh, Candy Burris, Tamika... Uh, sisters Latocha and Tamika Scott, and you put this group Escape together. Tell us a little bit about meeting Escape and that vision you had for them. Well, Escape came and sung for my birthday. I think my 19th birthday party. Yep. Um, and at the time when they came and sang Happy Birthday, you know they was out. They was already a group, and they was looking for you know situation. And they was brought to my house by a man by the name of Ian Burke. He brought them. They sang Happy Birthday, and then um. Um, after they sang, I, I I told them like I said I like y'all I want to sign y'all and I didn't even have a record I didn't have no label at that point I just was saying I, you know I, I was thinking in that mindset again right. like I'm gonna figure it out if I don't, you know and you know at the same time like I didn't care if I had a label or not I had just given an artist to another person's label that sold at five million at right. this point so right. like I have to do the same thing with somebody right, so right. I'm not thinking about it being my own situation it was just like. I'm just speaking this, and I'm gonna speak it and see if it happens. And now that I think about it, so they were a little similar to TLC in regards to how you dressed them on that first album. Like they were like tomboyish, and yeah, I mean like this. I, I was yeah. more or less like you know at the time they were young. You know, if you look at that picture, they were super, these girls are super young. So it's like yeah. the only female singing group at that time that that meant something at this time was involved. Yes, and Escape didn't look like women grown women like that. Escape looked like girls around the way. Yeah, they looked like young girls. So I yeah. felt like they should dress. Right. And then, I, you know, it was the first representation of my label. So I also wanted to put a mindset of what I wanted my label to be basically about. Well, then you dropped Just Kicking It as the first single. It was yeah. a number one record. Yeah. Then you dropped Understanding, another number one record. Then it goes platinum. So was, was you getting your props at that moment? Because, <laughs> I mean, like, who could doubt you at this point? Uh, nah, it's still being doubts because it was like Okay, he made a he, he made a left turn and he started making an R and B record, right? As opposed to a rap record. So then it was like, okay, well, your next move definitely can't be, you know, what's your next move gonna be? And that's that's where the you know that's where that's where the confusion started coming. Like you know, when I I saw a brat and it was like a female rapper, basically, you know, me taking a chance and on female rapping, believing that I could make it successful as. The, the first two artists that came out. And, and it was really, what was interesting at that time, too, was the music business was shifting because everything was kind of, Atlanta had TLC and you had a few artists out of Atlanta, You you but you also had what was happening in the West Coast with the sound of what was in the West Coast. So then you come with this female rapper from Chicago, yeah. and the Brat, and you drop Functified, and again, another platinum album, another big single. I mean, you were just on a roll, and again, you're like, what, 21? 20, yeah, 20. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. And so you must have been 
you must have been making a lot of money. So what what was that like in that moment? Because now you got cash hand over fist because you have your own label. What was that like for you and to be so young and to have that much success and and all the things that come with it? It was it was still most. I mean, you know, it was fun. I was having fun, but I, it was a lot of pressure. People were still like you know in doubt because it was coming out of Atlanta. It was still like a Atlanta wasn't a space where um, people thought they expected to hear this type right. of stuff coming from them and success wise so then it was just like how do I you know my mindset was just continuing to maintain it's not not you know don't get lost in the sauce continue to keep maintaining you made it with cause Brat Brat by the way was a little bit tougher than um escaping and, and crisscross mm-hmm. because I I wasn't you know, I I feel like I've created my own blueprint on Brat because the artist before her was Latifa and Light that was that meant something. Anquinette. Right. And, you know, right. These, these few artists here, you know, Roxanne Shantae. He dropped that Anquinette. Y'all don't even know about Anquinette. <laughs> Remember they had the video music box yeah, and she yeah, that I would always yeah, love you. And that yeah, video yeah, would pop yeah, up. Yeah. Oh my God, I don't even know so, about I mean, that. It's, it's 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 you know, it was a few artists here, but that's what I'm saying. Like as far as a female rapper coming out and selling records and being on the radio and people actually going crazy over it. It hadn't never been. So I had to create my own way with her. And it took me two years to get Brat Project right. Mm-hmm. So Brat blows up and then we go into 94. Again, in 94 and A, we have Outkast coming. So like the music business and LaFace and everything that was happening with them was really starting to take off in Atlanta, which is, hasn't stopped um, yeah. from that from that point. And then '94 is when you first started working with Mariah Carey. You did some, you did did a song or so with her. Now, how did you end up connecting with Mariah Carey? And we'll get into what you and Mariah did, but that was sort of like the first time you did a song with her. Well, she wanted she wanted um, a record like just kicking it. Mm-hmm. Um, that was her. That and, was, and she was like a pop princess. Remember, yeah. like you know, Mariah was like we didn't. I mean, we liked her black music. We loved Mariah Carey, but she was like pop. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. But she came. Now, when you said people, you know, chasing me and asking for music, she was the one artist that came to me and said, "I want a song that sounds like that song you did for those girls." Right. And I, you know, I didn't know. You know, I'm saying the same thing you saying. I'm not. I wasn't even really that. Up on Mariah Carey music because hey, I'm from Atlanta. They right, right, right. They wasn't playing right. Mariah Carey on V103 when, and not not that I. I mean, but they they played Vision of Love. I will say that. Yeah, yeah, that was they, a big record. They did play Vision of Love. So so it was a confusion in who she was and from the identity side from my point. But Vision of Love. Me listening to Vision and Love and thinking that right. wants me to work with them, I'm confused. Like, it was carefully crafted, uh, an image, yeah. and then like she gets divorced and she makes a complete left turn, and it completely changed her life. It completely changed her career. Like I, if she never, if that never would have happened, I don't think she would have survived. I think she would have just been another artist that had a great album. Mm-hmm. But connecting with you gave her like cool points. Like she just. And Mariah was cool when she started working with you, and we're gonna get we're gonna get into it because you, <laughs> you you changed her life. So anyway, we get to ninety five, right? So you do another, uh, you do off the hook, the off the hook album, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, Escape doesn't look like the Escape that you first brought us in the the first album. You yeah. kind of they were a little sexy, right? Yeah. And they come out with the first single because I remember I was on radio, and the first single kind of was like a dud. It didn't work, yeah. but then you you do Who Can I Run To, and that's just like again these girls uh, and then the album is uh, platinum 
uh, number one R and B number a top a record like that was a pop record like and records like that don't go pop and so you must have been like I mean did you did you just when that first single came out and it didn't do well did you feel a little hesitation on them or did you know who can I run to was gonna take them well, to I knew another who level I, I knew who can I run to was gonna was was I didn't know it was gonna blow but I knew it was gonna work um, um, because I you know I, mean, I prided escape from being on the singing but I also I also you know, um, feel so good was like me trying to answer to people saying how good just kicking it felt. Right. Like, yo, we need another record like that. Right. You know, like, right. The, the, one of the one of the interesting things about Jermaine Dupri as a producer is I don't I try not to copy my hits. So if I made it just kicking it. I didn't make another one for that album. Right. So I came back the second time and people was like, yo, they need another just kicking it. Right. So I was trying to make one to to Right. You know, feed what people were saying and that be you know, it was a it was a mistake. I don't make records based on people telling me what they think I need to do. And Who Can I Run To was like the perfect song. It came right in the wintertime. It was just like perfect. It was just like yeah. and, and everybody and a lot of people didn't even know the Jones girls. They didn't know what that yeah, was. They didn't know the original yeah, song. Definitely didn't. And it took it to another level. Yeah. So I mean that 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 song and then um, the Do You Want To song off this off that album. It, it just you know it, it came and did what it had to do. You know? Right. And, and and as a record company, that was a good album for us as a record company because every record that you make, you can't you can't program your company to say every record you put out is going to be a success. Right. You got to know what to do when records don't succeed. Right. What you going to do next? Right. You know what I mean? So, we didn't we didn't crash or burn. We just, you know, played it on out like, okay, the first single wasn't the greatest record. It wasn't a platinum single like but we can come with this second single and we're going to keep it moving. So, for the company that was a good, you know, it was a good good exercise. So, you have that success and then you do you had your crisscross major pop worldwide smash success a few years earlier, and in '95 you have it again with "Always Be My Baby" from Mariah Carey, which again you deliver her the most urban sounding record she had ever done, and then you do a remix too that was even more urban, and all of a sudden the pop audience was like, "Oh, we like this too. Yeah. We like the other Mariah, but we like this Mariah." And did you? Did, what did you think when you were making that, knowing what her image was? Did you, what, did you? How did you think people were going to accept it? I didn't. I didn't. I didn't, I didn't like I said, I stopped. You know, one thing, like I said, I stopped. I never listened to what people told me about artists and stuff. I just go with what I feel like I, I like. You know what I mean? And I felt like when I made the first Always Be My Baby, I didn't know what that song was. I just was trying to, like I said, I, I can't. It's hard for me to duplicate what I do. So I don't even believe that Always Be My Baby sounded anything like let's kicking it but it had those elements right it had some of the elements in there of just kicking it and it felt very urban for her right and it was the third single off that album so i felt like i thought i had messed up i thought i didn't you know when you right. the third single as producer my artist like mariah carey you uh, yeah we just doing this just to keep right until we keep get the album, album right? right so i felt like i had messed up i didn't know what that song was gonna be they said the song, you know, was gonna be the single that came out, and then she was like, "We needed to do a remix," and I'm like, "Okay, well, my mentality of remixes is harder, um, go even more left of what the song actually is, and do something completely different, change the lyrics, re-sing everything. That's my mentality. Right, that's right. what I was doing with Escape. Right, and I'm like, if that's what you want, that's that's where I'm going. 
And she was like, I'm with it. And we did the, you know, took the SOS band. And she was like, Mom, put Escape on the song. Get Escape up here. And it was sort of like, a, it was sort of a Just Kicking It type song, the way you did the remix. Yeah. And it was brilliant. Again, if you haven't seen the video for this, he basically took home movies of them recording, or maybe you made it up. I don't know. It looked like home movies of them recording the single. No, we did. We recorded the song at, that, at the same yeah. time, by the way. This is the first time I ever did that in my life where we filmed the actual making of the record and she put the video out. Like yeah. So it's like literally laid back Mariah hanging with black folks and just chilling. <laughs> She's walking a dog. Escape is all hanging out. They're singing the hook behind her. I mean, it was just brilliant. And then the remix just explodes. Yeah. So then you have this major pop moment and major urban moment with Mariah Carey, which actually pivoted her career at that point. She, she became, I'm going to be the urban pop girl first and then anything else after that it'll be fine so yeah. then you have that then you drop another tantrum from the brat another big album she goes she goes gold so when did you ever rest because it seemed like you were just it was non-stop and we didn't even get to the 2000s yet because when we get to the <laughs> 2000s you go on steroids but in that moment like it just what was your life like because it was like did you ever take a break or you would just nah, not I mean even when that you say that like when we, one one part of it we skipped is that and, and when I put out rap that was the first time that people had heard me rap it was right. the beginning of Jermaine Dupree as an artist that's true um, so then I was doing my album um, and then my album came out in 98 I think that's yep. when it came out and, and yeah it was I mean it wasn't but I mean it was not really about it's just fun it's like one record Energized me to go to the next, and the next thing energized me to go to the next. It wasn't even a, it didn't feel like work. It just felt like I'm, I'm being energized, and it's a space that that's needed. And I just gotta keep, you know, keep giving. And, and we're gonna get to your album because again, we, there was so much <laughs> that you were doing. Again, I, I, I have to teach you guys about Jermaine. Coming up on the Backstory Podcast, Jermaine gives Mariah Carey one of the biggest songs in music history. I say it's going all out of my element, throwing things, trying to find in front of me. I went the hell right. I went wrong. I'm saying this, just mimicking this like this. And she said, say it again. And I said, I'm going all out of my element. And it sounds like a rapper now that I think about it. Throwing things, yeah. trying, trying. You're listening to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Colby Kolb. This is the story of Jermaine Dupree. In 96, you give MC Light the biggest record of her career, a top 10 record. And again, MC Light was a great artist or whatever, but she never had that kind of success. And you get in the studio, keep on, keep keeping on. And, it be, and you get Escape to back her up. And then that record, of course, Liberian Girl, nobody had ever really sampled that before. <laughs> and that was a monster. Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, well, you know, and when I did it, the Light Project, I, I was still feeling like, Damn, like I'm doing all this, you know, I'm having this much success, but people ain't really outside really trying to use me. It right. felt like I was just for my new artist. And right. I was like, people were really not really paying no attention to me. Then, like, um, she called and was like, yo, I want you to do, you know, five songs on my album and, you know, executive producing. Let's try to make a record. And I was just like, you know, I'm going to try try my damnness to give her, right. you know, a record that, that breaks the mold of where MC Light was at. So, right. Um, and that was a, an amazing moment for her career. And then um, one of the great hip hop albums of the '90s, Little Kim. People don't know this. You did not tonight off a of, off a of hardcore. Yeah. That's a great song. <laughs> and that was a great album. And again, like 
I didn't even know you did that song. And I was like, that was a very hardcore song for you at that because you weren't you weren't making hardcore music like that. Yeah. But then you get with Little Kim. So where'd that connection come from? Um. Well, well, Biggie always wanted my beats. He said he wanted a crisscross beat. Like he wanted the the um um tonight's the night beat from Crisscross. And it, like the Young Rich and Dangerous album, Crisscross Young Rich and Dangerous album. The beats on that album really had a lot of rappers wanting. Oh yeah. Had a lot of rappers wanting to rap over beats that I was making. Yeah. And I think he told Biggie told me that when I did the um. Live and Die for Hip Hop song with Criss Cross over the Reg- Regina Bell when I took the Regina Bell loop. Right. That's when I he was like, I wanted that beat. Right. And then, but but something happened where he called me and he asked for a beat. And when he called me and asked for a beat, I gave him that Not Tonight beat. Oh, that was a great song. So <laughs> then, let's talk about uh, 97 because 97, you have another breakthrough moment with another ATL artist, Usher, who we had all saw... You know, he he was definitely somebody coming up on the LaFace label. And then you got You Make Me Wanna, which was really his explosive song. Like the one song that really was like, who was this kid Usher? Even though he had been around. Mm -hmm. It was number one R&B, number two pop. um, Then Nice and Slow, number one pop and R&B. And My Way, the title track to the album. That was just, again, for Usher, it was just, you know, really put him on the map. As a superstar, he wasn't a superstar until that moment, and then you deliver that. So then that was somebody outside of your circle. So you are you obviously knew because um, sidebar that people don't notice that um, L. A. Reed sent Usher to Diddy first on the first album, yeah. and then he gets with you on this project. So how did that come about? Well, the first album, yeah, he did his album with Diddy and Devon, uh, Devontae. And, yeah. Um, and I think he had, you know, he had mediocre success, yep. and people, got, you know, we all got to know who he was from right. that album. Right. And then it was time for them to make his second album, and this was a trying moment for Usher and LaFace because LaFace had Donnell Jones, who was doing, he was doing his thing. Right. But mainly an R and B artist. Yeah. Um. Um. They had uh, Tony Rich, and they had um. They had a couple of other male right. R and B artists there. Um. And they, on his second album, they put him in the studio with Dallas, I think. And I think he started with Dallas Austin as far as trying to carve out who he was going to be as an artist. Mm-hmm. And this was, a, you know, this was a time when I'm hearing later on after I did it that they was going to drop him if they didn't figure it out. Wow. Right. So, um, Brian Reed, L.A.'s brother, decided... You know, let JD do it. Mm-hmm. And so what they did was they was like, they gave me a remix first, the Thinking of You remix. And they was like, if you, can you do a remix on this song? And that was from the first album. From the first album, yeah. Thinking of You, which right. was, I guess. That third, was a great song, too. Yeah, third yeah. single or whatever. Yeah. And on, the, on that song, when I did the remix, I told them I wanted to do a bridge on the song so I could so I could change the song up a little bit. So when I did a bridge, I had Usher come in and sing the bridge. Mm-hmm. And... The way Usher sounded on that bridge, L.A. loved the way I yeah. made him sound. Yeah. And it changed the dynamic. That was the different. Thing. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. That was a different Usher. We didn't hear yeah, that. It changed yeah. the dynamic of the way that song sounded. Right? right. And when L.A. heard that, he was like, you should go in the studio with Jermaine and try to make an album. So it sells 6 million copies in the U.S., 10 million plus worldwide. <laughs> and Usher is a superstar, just like that. And again, you gave him this touch 
that helped him get to this level where, I mean, literally, he was a gold artist that went from a gold artist to a 10 million plus artist in a matter of two years, thanks to Jermaine Dupri. Um, So let's talk about Jagged Edge, because it was around this time when you signed Jagged Edge. Because, again, you're having all the success. How are you keeping up with So So Deaf when you're doing all this major stuff outside (laughs) of So So Deaf and then you find these brothers Jagged Edge? Uh, well, I mean, I, like you know, at the same time, I never, I, uh, these, 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 these sort of like Usher and these side projects, they never really felt like they felt like it was just me. Mm-hmm. You know, what I mean, it didn't have anything to do with my company. Nobody from Social Death was actually working with Usher. It was all me just trying to, you know, I was just I was focused on me doing this, and then I go to my office and. It'd be a, a whole office full of people working, so it was a different. It felt different for me, but yeah, Jagged Edge came um, through Candy from Escape. She brought them to the studio one day and was like, or to my house one day and was like, I got this male group, and I was like, okay. Well, initially my mindset was like, okay, if she bringing them, this gonna be a male version of Escape, Escape right? So this should be easy. I got a whole little template for this, right? Right, right. And uh, they sang for me, and I, you know, I liked them. I thought it was cool. I was like, okay, yeah, it's cool. And um, I hit her back, and I told her, sign, let's figure it out. And you know, I took Jagged in the studio, and the uh, first couple sessions was me trying to turn them into a male version of Escape, and they was like, that's not who we are. Right. We're not no male version of Escape. We we are church boys. We much more of a different type of R and B type group. Soulful. Yeah, you know, so. I had to learn who Jagged Edge was, and um, I, you know, I was convinced I was gonna learn. And they took me down this this R&B path, and we went down that road, and we actually found out who they were. And gotta be, which I don't know if that was their first single, but no, the first single was um, the way that, the way that we talk. The way that we talk, right? Um, but gotta be was just a really great song. It was yeah, a great yeah. R&B song, yeah. and it was like two minutes and thirty seconds. I just remember it had like a thirty second <laughs> intro, and it was two thirty, and it was just like the perfect song. And they were just nice guys. I just remember meeting them in that time, and they were just really down to earth, nice guys. Yeah. And at the time, you know, New Edition had already, you know, New New Edition had kind of tailed, and so there wasn't really a group like that. I mean, Boys to Men had their had their moment, but it was not a lot of male groups in that moment. And so you put, putting them on. That first album, uh, I believe it went gold. It wasn't. Yeah, it the was, first album yeah, was gold. Yeah. yeah. And again, they didn't really have like monster hits. But again, you just have this touch because a lot of people can't just be putting random groups out and then they just go gold. So then we get to '98. You put out another um, Escape album, Traces of My Lipstick, Platinum again. Um, and then this is where you come out with your own album. And I, rem- I just remember Money Ain't a Thing because that was just such an amazing song. So on this album, you had Jay-Z, DMX, Nas, Slick Rick. You had Mariah, you had Usher, you had Little Kim. I mean, it was a who's who at that time in, in R&B and hip hop. You bring them all together, and it was life in 1472. And, of course, Money in a Thing, you and Jay-Z, the videos. That, that video was just one of the – there was an epic video for you. And so why did you – talk about wanting to be an artist. In the midst of everything else that you were doing, why did you even want to be an artist? Um, I didn't want to be an artist. I just did it for fun on the Brat record. And the Brat record happened to be a platinum record, which right. would turn into people saying – Who's that? And right. What are you doing? When are you gonna rap? When are you gonna rap again? Right. Rap again. So right. I start hearing all this noise, and I'm like, 
Okay, maybe. You know, and, and I was writing so much that I was I had records that was just laying to the side I write that I give somebody I don't give somebody I write, I write, blah blah blah. So then I rapped on the My Way album on My Way, I was yep. actually rapping on that song. Yep. Um you know, I just was putting verses here and there just and people started once one person heard my voice, then people was like, You keeping your voice on the song and I'm like, you you know, once that happens I'm like, ah, whatever. So, um after it was after the Drew Hill remix. That's when you know. Um, in my bed. Yeah, sleeping in yeah, my bed. In my bed. Yeah. Was the actual seal to me yeah. making an album because yeah. at that point people was like you and Brad are you know dynamic duo, but Jermaine, you gotta make albums. Yeah. You know blah blah. blah. I, I I didn't even bring that up, but the in my bed <laughs> remix Drew Hill took them to another level. Yeah, that so, that was a great remix. So after the Drew Hill remix, it was it was destined that I was gonna make my own record. So then you just I'm just kind of speeding up a little bit. So you did Monica the first night, which was a number one record. That was a great Diana Ross sample, right? And then you come back with uh, J E Heartbreak, which is sort of like their version of any Heartbreak, the big album for Jagged Edge, and it's Let's Get Married. And uh, and the uh, the uh, Fresh Fest again was you know an early defining moment in your career. But then you reach back and you get. Reverend Run to be on the remix yeah. and then Let's Get Married becomes a pop hit, number one R&B hit, like, and then Jagged Edge becomes, like, superstars. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it was just like, it's crazy how this happened. And then you signed Bow Wow. Yeah. So talk a little bit about Bow Wow, finding Bow Wow, because this was, again, another project that kid rappers... No, nobody pays attention to that. I mean, I can tell you from my side, like, you know, we may play a song here or there, or whatever, but they never really have any success. Yeah. So, Bow Wow. Yeah. Um, well, Bow Wow came to me through one of my homeboys um, who actually signed me, who actually gave me my publishing company. He he basically called me after this and, and was like, Jermaine, I found this kid. And I was like, uh, kid rappers. And I'm thinking the same yep. thing you're saying. I'm mm-hmm. like, man, you know. Um, and you hit lightning in the bottle with crisscross, so you already had a yeah, moment. Yeah, I, I'm thinking, but I, but I, but I looked at it. And I said, ten years ago, this was ten years ago that crisscross came. It was directly ten years, right? When, when Bow Wow came into my life, and I was like, it's been that long. Maybe, maybe people need this. Maybe kids need this, right? Um, and by the way, kids need this every time. So, yep. so. Um, if anybody's asking what's getting ready to happen, that's going to happen again. But I'm telling you because kids need this music. People forget about these kids. But that's true. Um, I looked at it like, and I said, okay, n- n- perhaps they need this. And um, I still wasn't sold on Bow. I didn't know exactly how. Um, so I had him come to Atlanta, and the night I had him come to Atlanta, me and Jay Z was it was a like a V103 album release party for Life in 1472. So Jay-Z was performing at this club and I had Bow Wow come. And Bow Wow was just sitting on stage when me and Jay-Z was performing. And at the end of our performance, um, he grabbed me and was like, let me perform. And I never heard him rap before. Right, right. And he was like... And you're in a party full of adults. Yeah, he was was 11 years old. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm like, eh, oh, and I'm like, you know, yeah, I'm like, it's just the audience is me and Jay Z, so you know, the crowd was a little, they was completely not ready for no tenure. Right, 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 right. So I'm like, ah, oh, nah, man, right, right, what right. you gonna do? And he's like, nah, I'm telling you. And um, and he said, tell the DJ, give me a beat. 
So I told everybody, thank you for coming out. I'm trying to right. curve it so that if it goes bad, right, 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 right. So right, like, right. You know, thank you for coming out. Blah blah blah. I got this little guy that's on stage with me. He told me let he want rap for y'all. His name Bow Wow. And um, you know the crowd, you know the crowd was receptive. Right. They didn't know what was going on. Right, right, right. And dude, I told the DJ put on a beat. He, DJ put on a beat, and this little kid started rapping. And um, his stage presence dominated this room to a point that made me be like, oh my god, I gotta make a record for him immediately. Right. Um. And from there, it was just like, I just got to figure out the song. I got to figure out a song for this kid because he got the stage presence. Yeah. He got everything that he needed to and, do. And it was needed because it was nobody else in that lane. Yeah, it was nobody else in the lane. And he so goes double platinum. Triple. Triple platinum. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> wow. I mean, that's just a great story. And you're right. Right now, there's nothing like that right now. Oh, no. 100%. Yeah. I mean, I've seen, you know, I got my TV show and I see these kids from my TV show and I see everything that they do is two music that has... 150 million curse words in it. Right, 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 right. Because they're so used to listening to all this, the adult stuff that comes yeah. out. All right, so then we get to 2001, and you're working with Usher again, and you drop another mega bomb song. <laughs> you got it bad. Number one pop, number one R&B, a worldwide smash. I mean, your chemistry with Usher, and we're going to get to Mariah in a minute because you really changed her life again. But tell us about You Got It Bad. Tell us about that song. Well, you got it bad. Well, Usher's first number one, real uh, top one hundred number one record was Nice and Slow. Right. So when I wrote Nice and Slow, once again, I tell you, I don't re, I don't, I don't duplicate my songs. I make one song and then I'm trying to make something else. Right. Um. So when we made Nice and Slow. The song went. It was. Just, it, was it was bigger than you make me want. I didn't expect that to happen. Um, it was bigger than my way. It became the first, you know, the the, the the first top 100 record for Usher. And when you get a record that's that big, then it's like, damn, we need another song like that. Right. We need another song like that. This song's good. We need another song like that. That becomes the conversation at record companies. Right. That becomes the management's conversation, everything. So, Nice and Slow was this way and it sounded a way, and people responded to it. So then my... My next mindset was, how do I make an extension of Nice and Slow? What's next after Nice and Slow? And um, You Got It Bad was that record. Um, it was it was the beginning of me telling Usher's truth when it comes to love and, and, and touching on a man actually confessing to, you know, being in a bad situation if he overloves somebody or right. whatever. And it, right. just, it just started directing me down that road. Well, you got it bad again, smashed, and you, you dropped Bow Wow, Doggy Bag, another platinum album, multi-platinum album. And then, so at this time, um, Mariah Carey was, in the early 2000s, was kind of in a down spell. She really didn't have a lot of hits. She did that movie Glitter. It didn't do well. And she was just kind of like uh, in between labels. And then she gets with a new label. And then you come in and step in, and you guys sit down again and work this magic and the emancipation of Mimi. A lot of people wrote her off. But again, uh, L.A. Reid was now over Def Jam, and L.A. Reid signed her, and then he put you guys together, I guess, or made sure you guys got together. And then you do a song called We Belong Together, which 
It's probably one of the biggest songs ever made. It was. <laughs> it was. I mean, I, you laugh, bro. That, that song was. Uh, it's crazy hearing people say that. It, it is. I mean, you know, we belong together was number one for fourteen weeks. Mm-hmm. All right, that's that's the first part, right? Um, it's the second longest in history being a number one. Um, it was the biggest song of that decade. Actually, you had two of the biggest albums, Usher and Mariah Carey, in the 2000s, back to back, with the two biggest selling albums of the year. Um, the Emancipation of Mimi sells 10 million plus worldwide. I mean, she is back with a vengeance, but We Belong Together is timeless. Mm. Tell us about that song and where did that come from? And, and talk to us about Mariah in that moment. It's funny having this conversation with you because it's really, I'm listening to how my. My career actually jumps back and forth because it's, it's based on somebody liking something that happened in the early years mm-hmm. that pulls something to the later years. Yep. Or something that happened in the younger years that pulls something to the later years. So it's just like the Run DMC. I went on tour with the one yep. was 12. Then they got pulled. Then he got pulled into the Let's Get Married. Yep. So it's the same thing. And, and we didn't even talk about it. You actually re-signed Houdini yeah. and gave them an album when yeah. nobody was giving them anything. But that was love in that moment. Yeah. I mean, why? Well, and, and, and they would have worked, by the way, because it was just, once again, it was like people not understanding. Um, it would have worked. It was just, it was just people were so caught up in the, the name and me putting out so many new artists that they weren't really like respectful to right. the fact that it was and, and sadly at the time in, in hip hop because I'm a first generation hip hop like you like we threw those artists away yeah. oh you were done with you we're on to the next yeah, artist 100%. every 10 years it was like oh you're done yeah. and now we see a little bit different now like the the classic artists are still making quality music right and they still get that respect yeah. so anyway Mariah Carey yeah, so, so the Mariah record came about because Emancipation of Mimi was done they had finished the album. I wasn't on it. I mm-hmm. had no records on the album. L.A. had finished the album. And L.A. called Mariah into his office and said, um, um, I, I feel like we're not done. And she said, what do you mean? He was like, I feel like we need, we need another song. And he said, one of the, one of the songs that I love for you, of my favorite record from Mariah Carey, is Always Be My Baby. Right. She was like, yeah, I made that song with your man. He's like, yeah, I think you need to go to Atlanta, and y'all just need to try it. Y'all need to try it, try to make a song and see what happens. He didn't say, he didn't, he, matter of fact, he didn't even tell me what to do. He just said, I feel like y'all should just get in the studio and see what happens. Cut to the chase, she comes to Atlanta. She comes to Atlanta, we make It's Like That and Shake It Off. Shake It Off, yep. Yep, she comes, we make It's Like That and Shake It Off. They go back to New York, LA listen to It's Like That. He's like, yeah, I'm feeling this. We're going, it's going in a different direction. By the way, she had no other records on her album like those two songs anyway. Right. So he felt like we was making music that... She needed to make this whole album great. Oh my no! It was like risk, the whole thing was risky because it was like this was make or break for her career because because yeah. there was a lot of money on the t- on the, on the line for this. Yeah. So so did it like that and shake it off. Mind you, I don't know nothing. I don't know what's going on with people's careers. <laughs> right, right, right. I'm just making what I feel like I like. Right. right. So they go, they come back, they say, "Yo, we're gonna come back to Atlanta and we're gonna do this. Try one more time." He said, he said, he said, Jermaine, you got to try one more time. This time I'm thinking you guys should try to make a ballad. He did say that. She comes back. We do. As soon as she get here, I got, can I get your number? 
I'm like, you got to sing over this. I'm just Mariah Carey. I'm like this loop right here. Right. This imagination, sing over this. So, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in that mode. But then at the same time, I guess he told her she needed a ballad, and, and probably he already told her that she needed We Belonging. I mean, uh, um, Always Be My Baby. I'm just not knowing this. So she's like, you know, we did that. Um, um, we got past Can I Get Your Number and she's like let's work on the ballad so we start working on We Belong Together and We Belong Together was like the last song we worked on um, I had seven hours at the most to make this song complete this song because she wanted the song completed with all the lyrics all done and everything before she got on a plane we didn't have no two days this was seven hours so we made this song people falling out it was five six o'clock in the morning People falling out, engineers asleep, me and Mariah still going. And I said, um, it was the one little part of the song was still open. Um, and I was like, MC, just take the record. You write the song when you get home. She was like, no, you write the song. You write this part right now before I get on this plane. I'm like, oh, man, God, I'm tired as hell. I don't know. I'm like, I don't know what to say. And then I just kept listening to it, and I'm, and I'm just thinking... And the way that I write music, I write R&B songs, I write like, I write raps. So, um, I say it's going all out of my element, throwing things, trying to find in front of me, like, what the hell right. went wrong? I'm saying this, just mimicking this like this. And she said, say that again. And I said, I'm going all out of my element. And it sounds like a rapper now that I think about it. Throwing things, trying, trying, trying to figure out where the hell I went wrong. That whole little part. And she was like, go in the studio and do this. And I'm like, like I don't even remember right now. I'm telling you, but this is exactly how I was doing it. Right. And I went in the booth and I did this part, and she took my vocal and she left. And I, and I was like, okay, well, I don't know if this is gonna turn out to be whatever. It's late. She took this song back to New York and she cut this song. And LA called me and he's like, yo, you ain't dude. This is it. What did, what what did you do? And I was like, this before the song even came out. Right. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. You know what I mean? It was like we didn't know. What we was making. I didn't know what we was making. I just thought we was making a good song. I did what I knew, normally do: made the music, put my beat, and then you know just try to continue to give us something that felt good. I didn't know what we was making song of the decade. Wow, definitely not. So, so again, huge song, two thousand four, two thousand five. You had some of the biggest music out. Um, you then go on to have your own label. Uh, you had run your own label. Um, tell us about your career. What's been the most fun part of your career? Because you've done so many things. Most fun, um, being out, being able to put out multiple artists. Um, um, just like having a baby, you know. It's like it's like creating something from scratch and watching people. Um, watching every piece of it fall into place, not without the people. Just actually like. From the jump of saying like, oh, this the idea, this how you're going to look, this the first single. And, and doing that um, and watching that come to life and actually people 
be receptive of it. That's the, probably the most joy I most joy I get out of anything. Now you're very confident and you're 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 just very focused. You told us that you kind of lost out on TLC because that was your group first. What else did you lose out on that we would know about now that you had your hands on and ended up becoming something? In, uh... Well, I mean, I actually lost out on signing everybody in Atlanta. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I say that because I had a – it was a point in my career where Sony ATV came to me in Dallas, Austin, and they told us to sell our publishing to both of them. Mm-hmm. And they wanted us to merge our publishing and create – Sony ATV South. Right. And we were going to basically become owners in in Sony ATV and sign up everything that was coming out of here. My ego and Dallas's ego was too big to realize how big that could be and how stupid that actually sounds now. <laughs> right, right. Uh, we thought our companies was not nah, right. trying to kill our company. Right, right. And, you know, we didn't realize like the move Michael Jackson made was the move that we were supposed to be making. Like, right. Yeah, become part of Sony ATV and you own Sony ATV and that company's going to go forever and ever and ever. Your little publishing company, it might die. You know, you never, I never, you know, we was thinking, we was just thinking that we were bigger than, bigger than life. And that's, the, that's, a, that's good though for me because it taught me one thing about this music industry and business in general. You can always be the first in a creation of Something like music and a song, but you can't never be first in creation of making money in this country. Never. That's that's true. Money's been made before yeah. everybody. Before and the everybody. rules have already been written. Rules, yeah. so <laughs> if you don't ever believe that you are the first person to make a million to two million dollars. It's never. It's you. It's been done. So don't ever try to believe that you're gonna. Well, my company's gonna no. If we talking about a billion dollars, right? We talking about Facebook money. That might be a different conversation. But to say a couple of million dollars, they they done made that, and it's not right. anything that you you can't be the first to do it. Right. right. So it's a it, it teach, teaches you a lesson that 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 place in life you have to become a copycat, and you got to understand how copying the the people that's come before you makes sense. Right. So if you could do some certain things different, what would you have done differently in your career? Um, that I would have done that because I feel like you know I feel like the way I market and the way I move my southern music has always been different than anybody else from this city, and I feel like I feel like Atlanta would have gotten. Uh, I'm not not to say we haven't, and we have we getting the respect that we're supposed to get now, but there's still a lot of people that feel like some of that early music got overlooked because of the respect level, and I feel like. It um it would have been I would I would have just taken uh, you know a little bit more control over like I said I didn't have the my mind wasn't in the space to sign TLC. Um, you were also very young too. I mean you, you didn't yeah, have a lot of experience. I, I I mean I didn't even know I didn't know nothing basically. So I missed TLC. Um, Ludacris I could have signed. I asked everybody at my office. Should I sign Ludacris? And everybody in my office told me no. When he was on the radio here yeah, in Atlanta? He was on the radio. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I went, I asked. And Him I asked, and Lala together. We're to, man, doing a show together. I went to my office and I, you know, I, you know, because I was young and I was going back and forth with things that I saw. Right. And I felt like, okay, I got like 30 people working for me. And I was hearing echoes of, Jermaine, you think you can do it all by yourself. You know, you got right. an old company. Let everybody, let us work some. Right. Right. 
So let us work some is what made me give little John the the, the opportunity to do the the social death base all stars. Right. Did a compilation that was all him as an and off social death. Go make this album. Come back. Let's make some records. Blah blah blah. So I let little John do that, and that was me basically relinquishing what I had been holding on to the entire time. When Ludacris came, Ludacris was throwing. I put Ludacris on Madden 2000. This was the first John Madden game that had an intro with a rapper on it. They came to me and they was like, Jermaine, we want you to produce the music for the intro of John Madden. And they said, but we want somebody that's animated. I didn't handle animated rapper. Right. I mean, Brat was animated, but not like, ah, ah. Right, right, right. You know, so the only person I kept remembering was I kept hearing this kid on the radio, on the radio, and he sounded super animated. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get this Chris Lover Lover dude. So I gave Chris opportunity. He got paid. I put him on Madden. He's on all these video games around the country. Now, I did all of this without signing him. Right. And I went to my office. I said, yo, I just did this thing with Madden with this kid, <laughs> Ludacris. And what y'all think? Y'all think you should sign him? And everybody's like, nah, man. He's like, he's like animation. Right. And I'm like, okay. He was like a young Buster Rhymes. Yeah. But from the South. Yeah. They told me, nah, I missed out. Yeah. Well, that's why you got to keep following your gut. He had three triple platinum albums. I know. Yep. (laughs) But you did walk him to Atlanta. So you did do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you work with him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was my man. Right. You know, he... he, 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 It was just crazy because, like I said, it's like you, you... When you become, I guess, the boss or whatever it is, you have this obligation to people to let people work but you also have a way that you feel as yourself and if you don't let people work then people get frustrated like you know I'm not working with so deaf because JD makes all the decisions we ain't gonna get to make no decision he's right. just gonna tell us what to do this was kind of like probably what people was thinking so I was trying to relinquish some of that and you know, you are. Uh, I don't want to say. I don't want to age you because I don't. Because you just still. To me, you're still, still a young guy. But you're sort of the godfather of Atlanta music. Like if you think about all of that is happening in the business, in in urban R and B, hip hop music, and pop music. What's happening now? It kind of goes back to you in the in the 90s. I mean, you basically was the one that kind of put the A on the map, and so much stuff happened as a result after that. You know, do you, you know, do you walk around here? Do you think about your your legacy in this town? No, nah, because I feel like I don't I don't think about it because um, the way the story, the way stories are created and the way, way things are in the world we live in, there's no young godfathers. Right. That's right. basically that's, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> that's basically the thought process. So even when you're saying that, it's like. We've been taught that there's no young godfather. So people automatically think I'm old. They don't pay you know, they don't they don't hear stories like this and understand how young right. they, how young I was when I right. started. Right. You know, um to this day Jay Z, Puff, Russell, Leo, all the guys that's that you look at as the the leading godfathers of right. hip hop. They're right. older than me. So, right. you know, regardless, I think, you know, it's that it's just that the stories change with Jermaine Dupree, and I don't. I guess that's. I'm just going with the flow. You know what I mean? At some point, it will change, but I think you know. Right now, people still don't. They don't. They. It's hard for them to. to you know. Have you that. watched the Quincy documentary on Netflix? Of course. 
So, so what do you think about Quincy Jones? If you look at yourself and what you've done to date, and you're nowhere near obviously that Quincy, but you guys kind of mirror each other in in what he was doing in his time. And I mean, right about where you are right now is when he was doing Thriller at your yeah, age. Yeah, think I about mean, that. Yeah, he, I mean, he's by far my idol. You know, Quincy's. You know, and 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 I wanted people to, um, you know, know me for more than just rap. And, and, and R&B You know that's why I was happy about the Mariah records And all the other things that I've done um, I wanted people to know me as You know as a long stretch Of, 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 of both sides Of the world R&B and hip hop um, I mean it's coming You know what I mean like I said I feel like it's, it's You're right it's still It's still to come to me um, I can't want everything that Quincy's got right now because right. it didn't happen for him at that at that point. Right, right. But um, I'm definitely, you know, I'm definitely chasing um, that path. I mean, mine's is going to be different because it's definitely hip hop and and R and B. Um, you know, um, with me being inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, it already starts in that type of direction because I be I became the first writer in that room. Um, and I don't know how long that's been going, but if it's been going for 40 years or 50 years, in the last 40 years, they never had a person in that room that's written a number one rap song, a number one pop song, and a number one R&B song. So I'm the first person in that room to do that. Did you ever think about scoring movies? Because I know you saw that part about Quincy where, no, where oh yeah, everybody told him that he couldn't do it, oh and, yeah, he, and he went out there and did I it. Mean, that's, and, I, and I feel like I'm in that same boat. People mm-hmm. don't believe that I could do it, mm-hmm. um, probably, and that's why it hasn't been done, but I definitely feel like that's where I'm headed, and that's, that's the things that I want to do. And we're also celebrating 25 years this year of So So Deaf, and you're yeah. going to embark on a tour, and you're getting all the gang back together. I yeah. know you're in the process of putting all that together. So how has that been going on tour with your – Have you? did you guys ever do that before? No, we've never been on tour. Yeah. Artists, artists have never been around each other. You know, um, Escape came out in 93. Yeah, 93. 93. Mm-hmm. And Bow Wow came out in 2001, so it's a – stretch of people that haven't even seen each other mm-hmm. you know they, they, they heard of each other so how are you navigating the egos navigating just them being on tour like it's a lot of moving parts there I know you're practicing right yeah, now it hasn't started yet that's, yeah. that's the thing you know um, it's going to be interesting yeah. but um, I, I you know I, I feel like all of the artists should understand at this point this is this is all their history as well um, none of my artists were ever signed um well, except for Franchise Boys, but everybody else was soul signed artists to So So Death. They didn't come from another label trying to, you know, everybody grew up and, 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 and became. And we didn't even get into the Franchise Boys and Capital and all that. That's why people have to come to this concert because there's so many different levels of So So right. Death and so many different um, eras of So So Death. This era with the Franchise Boys, Jay Kwan, Bone Crusher, and the Young Bloods, to me, was the era of Atlanta turning into the sound that it is now. Right. You know, um Crunk. And and before that was this crunk turned up sound that was the base all stars and all of that stuff. So it's it's you know, 
the show is it's definitely going to be uh, um, interesting. Yeah, I, I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to see the visuals. Uh-huh. Well, Jermaine, I want to thank you for your time, man. It's I know you're really busy, and uh, I wanted to tell your story. No, and I've you. and I've known you for a long time, and actually. I didn't know this, but you had told me years ago when you came to Philly to do crisscross. You used to listen to me on the radio when I had to, when I had my hip hop show, and you used to tell me um, about the style of what we were doing on the radio. You guys didn't have that in Atlanta, and you you learned a lot about hip hop. You know when you spent that time in Philadelphia, which again you were like a kid. Oh yeah, just, I, was, I was a kid. I was sixteen, and I was in the after midnight. Oh my God! Oh, that club is the grimiest. Was you were in the warehouse one, not the one that was the underground. You were in the one that was like a big warehouse. Yeah, it was a big. Warehouse. Yeah, yeah. See, yeah. before that, there was one that was like literally one way in, one way out, underground. Yeah. Uh, LL had a 16th birthday party in there and just did an epic freestyle that we still play. You know, we still play in Philadelphia, but those were great times for you to be in that energy yeah. and to make Crisscross's album. And um, you know, you just you just got a great legacy, man, and you've. Uh, traveled outside of Atlanta and you've been able to take the Atlanta sound to the world and Atlanta is still the mecca of music right now yeah I mean you know I, I wouldn't trade my life for nobody because I, for nothing because the, the, the younger Jermaine Dupree saw so much um, culture and, and change that it puts me at an advantage over a lot of people Yeah, you know what I mean just to be able to see Philly in that era and understand like there's so much I could take from Philly if I wanted to that people wouldn't even know where I was getting it from because I saw it at a young age you know what I'm saying it was like it's these special glasses that Philly oh gazelles and, and it was round and, yeah. and the way that they wore their hair haircuts yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the, the, the hilltop hustlers was to dress a certain type of way yeah um I mean, it's so much. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I used to be in the Galleria. If anybody from out there is yeah. listening, you know what I'm talking about. I used to be in the Galleria like I was in Atlantic's. Like, I'm in Atlantic's in Atlanta. I used to be standing in the mall looking around. Well, they shut that down. They actually shut the whole thing down. And it's actually going to be a high-end mall like the Galleria oh, in the... Uh, well, they're closed. It's about to open up. But, like, yeah. the Galleria in Houston yeah. and Dallas is going to be like that. Because okay. they, they pushed all of the hood stuff out of the mall. Yeah. And now it's like they're trying to make a high-end. But, again, back in, the, in that time, yeah. that's where you go went to get the clothes and all that. And, uh, you know, listen, what a, what an amazing career. And, again, I don't even think you're at halftime yet. I mean, I, I'm looking forward to see what you have in the future. But your your history and the music that you've made and the lives that you touch and the artists that you've brought to the world have just been uh, timeless and you know congratulations and we look forward to seeing the So So Deaf tour and we the, we just waiting on this next music what's that next sound's yeah, gonna be look for the new music the rap game coming back on and then um, another TV show I really talk about that I'm on a lot is growing up hip hop with my daughter Brat and Bow Wow and um that's basically my show as well. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Mr. Jermaine Dupree. Yeah, yeah. So, so deaf. Yeah. Legend right here on the Backstory Podcast. Coming up next on the Backstory Podcast, artist, entrepreneur, and overall legend, Mr. Swiss Beats. When my first checks came, I didn't, re- I didn't think they was real checks. I never seen no type of money like that before. And so um, I went to ASCAP one day. They had like an insurance card they was trying to introduce to all the writers and producers and stuff. And um, I went in there to get it, and they was just like super excited to see me. It was like, oh my God. Like, I'm like, oh damn, I just, why everybody's so excited like that? 
He's like, oh, how does it feel? I'm like, how does it feel what? I'm like, how does it feel to be rich? I'm like, I'm not rich. I took like four buses, two trains to get here. And she was like, um, you got a lot of money. I send you your checks. I was like, then it hit me. I was like, those are real checks? And she was like, yeah, because you know the hood. Like, we got publishers, Clarence House, and they're always sending some fake checks to the house. So I didn't know that. Nah, because my grandmother always told me just whatever checks come, just whether they, you know, just keep them in the box and she'll sort them out. So I always just kept checks in the box and come to find out like 750000 just sitting on my dresser for months. Get more of the backstory on our Patreon page with exclusive interviews, outtakes, and the Lost Controversial Backstory Podcast you can only get here. Support on the Backstory Bonus Level 